0: Right. Thank you. May I be seated? Let me try that again with the sound on. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning, the Eugene Church of Christ. Um, it's been a while since I've been here, but I'm glad to be back, and my name is Darren Williamson, and uh, here from Salem, but we currently are worshiping with the Southwest Church of Christ in Tigard, Oregon, and um, hopefully moving north a little bit soon to be a little closer to that new church body that we're part of I've been uh, preaching at the Kaiser Church of Christ for the last 11 years until about two months ago, and a transition now into a new ministry and, um, that uh, you'll be hearing some more about in the, the weeks and the months to come, something called the Northwest School of Discipleship. And it's a visionary initiative that the elders at the Southwest Church are engaging upon to help train up a new generation of disciples to follow Jesus with full abandon through a teaching program, a gap year program for young people, and a preaching ministry internship in the summers. So that's my new work that I'm starting up here very quickly, but uh, you, um, we're glad to be here today. My wife and my kids are here with us uh, today to worship with you, and I'm glad that I could uh, get to fill in for, for Calvin. As he's down, I guess, at a wedding, is that right? That is a good thing to go to the wedding of your daughter, right? It's like one of those uh, prerequisites. I'm looking forward to that. I have six daughters. So I'm starting to save up, right, for, that, uh, for the weddings. All right, it is good to be here this morning. And today we're going to look at a, a passage of Scripture that is one of those classics. It's one of those great uh, texts of the Bible And I was telling Mike uh, earlier in the week when I saw the song selection that our brother picked out, I just was inspired to say, I want to preach on Philippians chapter two. Especially that last song that we sang uh, that looks forward to that day when the Lord Jesus will return in glory to receive from the world his own. And in a world where people are wondering about their identity, who are we? Listen to me brothers and sisters, you are the possession of God. You are the great ones who belong to Him, wear His name, and your identity is secure in Him, and He's coming back soon to receive you to Himself. And today we want to look at one of those great passages that helps us gain perspective on who it is that we worship. Who is it the, that, whose name adorns this building? and as part of our identity as members of the body of Christ. This great passage of Scripture from Philippians chapter 2. And before I read this uh, section of Scripture, just be reminded that Paul has this great relationship with the church at Philippi. They have been his supporters throughout his missionary work. And in some ways, this letter is writing and thanking them for some things that they have done for him. Remember, it was there that we have the great uh, conversion of the Philippian jailer. The story of Lydia there in Acts chapter 16. Paul spent time in Philippi building up this church. And it's a strong church, evidently. It's uh, letter is addressed to the saints who are in Christ at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, meaning that they have a, a strong leadership structure there in Philippi, and they are sending missionaries out. But evidently, there is some conflict there in Philippi. And part of the reason he writes this letter is to help reorient this wonderful little church to who they are in Christ and how they should respond to what they have in Jesus. And in the middle of this little letter is the text that we'll be considering this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And the church said, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, gathered in this place to remember You, to honor and glorify your awesome name because you are our great God who made us. You made us in your image. You made us for relationship with you. You made us to rule over the world that you created. And even with our brokenness, our fallenness, our sin, you long for us to be near to you and you've made a way for us to be reconciled to yourself. And even with our brokenness and sin, you provide an atoning sacrifice that was the greatest gift, that was the highest and most precious thing that could be offered so that we could know beyond a doubt that our sins truly are fully forgiven. And as we have just partaken of the elements of the bread and the cup, and they've reminded our hearts and our minds that you really have forgiven us And now, Lord, as we look at your word, help us to reflect upon and understand deeply the basis of that forgiveness, and that is the humility and the exaltation of your Son. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. You know, the concept of overkill, when you kind of use something that's way more than what's needed for the task, Kind of like, uh, you know, pulling a kid around with a uh, 45-horse tractor. pull around in a wagon. That's a little more than what you need to do the job. Or maybe uh, sinking a 16-penny nail with a sledgehammer. Or maybe going rabbit hunting with a cannon, a 50-caliber cannon, right? That's overkill. And when the Apostle Paul comes to this section of Philippians... And he's trying to communicate to the Philippian church, listen, I want you to be united. I want you to have one mind and to be together and not be divided and not be split up and not have this conflict going on. I think he engages in some overkill. The argument that he brings out is the, the greatest argument that you could ever make as to why we must be humble amongst one another and seek have a unity of purpose in mind. And that is, he refers to the great humility of Jesus the Christ. And he does so through an interesting technique. Some of you may remember this, but um, in this section, this is a hymn. Paul is is using a hymn to bring out this important message that we should be humble just like our Lord was humble. Christians have always been big singers. It's always been something that people outside of our church know about us. It's part of that Jewish heritage in the synagogue where you would sing the psalms. That's why those 150 psalms are there in the, in the Old Testament. They're not just to be read, they're to be sung. And the synagogue worship, was part of, that was part of it, is to sing and that carried right over into the Christian community. We see that when Jesus has the last supper with his disciples in Matthew 26 30, they end it, and they sing a hymn, and then they go out. We see Paul and Silas singing in jail in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi. They're in jail, and they're singing about midnight, and people are listening to them. What were they singing about? We see singing in worship in Ephesians five and Colossians three, in first Corinthians fourteen it's described you're supposed to be singing, and then James says is anybody cheerful? Let them sing a hymn in James chapter five verse thirteen. We know that this continued on into the second century because one of the first secular references that we have to Christians that we still have today was a letter from the, the governor of Bithynia, a guy by the name of Pliny, who wrote back to the emperor Trajan about these Christians and trying to figure out what to do with them, this new group of people. We're not sure who they are. And he talks about the fact that we took a couple of slaves and we tortured them and he asked them, What do you guys do when you get together? And you know what they do when they get together? They sing hymns as to Christ, Christ as to a God. And this section of Philippians, scholars tell us, is a hymn. Now in English, some of your Bibles may have it set off in versification to make it clear, but in the Greek, it really has the rhythm of a hymn. And scholars say, no, this is, hymn. This is a hymn. And the question is, did Paul write this hymn for this very letter? Did he sit down and he he write this thing out? I don't know. Was it a hymn that they were singing in their churches that they had been singing for years and he quotes it to them? Like sometimes preachers quote our hymns that we sing when we preach a sermon. And did he add some things here and there? I, I don't know, and nobody really knows, but the fact of the matter, this is a hymn. It's something they're familiar with that can, they can be reminded of, and he applies it directly to the issue of conflict, of reconciliation, of being of one mind as a Christian community. Well, what does he say in this hymn? If you look in verse 6 and following, that's when the hymn proper starts. And it starts off by saying, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul makes reference to Christ's status before his incarnation. We have little information about his exalted status prior to coming to earth. We know a lot about his birth, his ministry, but little is told us about his status prior to his incarnation. What we do know is this, that he existed in the form of God. This is a cautious Jewish way of saying that Jesus is God he possessed the very nature of God and John 1:1 1, 1 talks about in the beginning when the, was the word and the word was with God and so forth it, it, it's the same kind of concept here that Paul is bringing out we know that he was with the father he was one with the father John points out in seven, John chapter 17 verse 5 and verse 24 but Paul adds that he did not count that equality with God something to be grasped And it doesn't mean that he was like, didn't have it and he wanted to get it, but no, it's that he has it and wasn't willing, he was willing to let go of something for a time. It wasn't something to be seized and held too tightly, that equality with God. It was something that he was willing to lay aside. And He emptied Himself. He poured Himself out. He emptied Himself not of deity itself, but of the trappings of deity, of the privileges of deity. It's not like He you know, took off His divinity when He came to be with us. No, He retained it, but He laid aside the glory that is due to the second member of the Godhead and that He's always had from eternity. He set that aside, the honor, the privileges of deity while he was with us. And Paul refers then to his incarnation. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And what we see here, starting with verse 7, is stages of humility of Christ. First, he takes on human form. This alone would be humbling enough for God just to become human being would be a humbling thing for God Almighty to do, the Creator taking on the form of the creation. And the New Testament indicates that Christ experienced everything about being human except for sin. He was born of a woman. He had a genealogy. He had a human mind that Mark thirteen thirty two suggests that he was limited in some way in knowledge while he was in this human form. He had to learn things. He had a human body and that means he hungered we see in various places. He thirsted. He got tired. We can assume that he got sick. You know if Jesus were living now you know he would be susceptible to the the coronavirus because he's a human being just like we are and all the things that come with that. He also experienced human temptations Hebrews 4 and Matthew 4 make very clear. This is what it means that he emptied himself. He laid aside the privileges of deity to become one of us. This was humbling enough, but Christ's humility went even farther. Next, Paul says he was obedient to the point of death. Imagine that, the author of life. Being obedient to where he experiences something that's actually foreign to the nature of God Himself. Obedient to the point of death. Following the Father's will all the way, teaching, preaching, healing, serving, and then dying. But Paul adds it was not just a normal death. It was even death on a cross. Scholars have noted that the hymn has a certain rhythm to it, but the phrase, even death on a cross, breaks that rhythm. It's almost as if Paul inserts it into the hymn to make sure we understand the depth of the humility of the Christ. He took on human form. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we're so familiar with the Christian story that we think, oh yes, of course he died on a cross. But remember, brothers and sisters, the depth of degradation, the humiliation, the scorn, the mocking, all of that was associated with the cross. Did you know that the Romans, they created this thing to purposely be something that shames someone at the moment of death and leading up to their death it's designed not just for pain it does that too but it's designed to strip you of all of your humanity all of the dignity that belongs to an image bearer you take it all off the great orator cicero said you know i don't even want to talk about crucifixion it's so horrible and it shouldn't even be mentioned in connection to a roman when a roman was executed they were never crucified because it was a undignified thing. It was too undignified for a Roman citizen. And in the Jewish community, it was a degradation as well, because they remembered that passage of the Old Testament that said that cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. And that cross is made out of wood. And in the Greek mind, of course, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 1 and 3, The cross is this foolish, humiliating, horrible thing. Nobody would do that. Nobody. And to say that the central message of our faith is that God became flesh and dwelt among us and He was obedient and He suffered and then He died on a cross is foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. But Paul says to us, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Of God for salvation the first part of this hymn points us to the great humility of Christ but also of God who shows us the love that he has for us the depths to which God was willing to go to save you and to save me he was willing to serve us and save us in the most humble of manners and it reminds us of Jesus what he did when he washed the disciples feet if he had stopped there washing their feet, that would have been humble enough. But the hymn goes on and says, no, he died for us, and he died for us in this despicable manner. The first part of this hymn takes Jesus from the highest place in the form of God to the lowest of places. But then the tone changes in verse 9, brothers and sisters. You know that when you read the Scriptures and you see a therefore, you know something's happening, right? Something different is, is going to be explained. Something that is connected to what has just been happened but is uh, new is going to be discussed. And so we see that in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The subject of the hymn now changes. Christ has been doing all the action. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He became obedient. But now we see in verse 9, it's God who steps in to do the actions. Therefore, God highly exalted him. God the Father looks at this humbling act that his Son does And he says, you're low, but I will make you high and not just high, but super high. And Paul uses a word here that's only used once, I believe, in the New Testament to say he's given the highest of high places. He's super exalted, not just exalted, but super exalted to raise someone to the loftiest height. And there's no higher that you can go. There's it's a terminal degree. It's the, the glass ceiling. It's whatever you want to say that you can't go any higher in your career. That's where Jesus is placed. That's where he's raised up to because of his humility. And he's given now the name that is above every name. And at this name, this name that he's given, the title that he's given, Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I could go on and on about all this language that's used about Jesus is this name that he's given, Lord. Well, you know, in in the Old Testament, the word Lord, there are several words that were used for God. One is the name of God, Yahweh. In some of your Old Testament Bibles, you'll see all caps, L-O-R-D. That's the name of God, Yahweh. And then there's another word, Adonai, which is just the typical word for Lord. But the Jews were using, often in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they were using the word Adonai to refer to, to Yahweh because they didn't want to use that word. It was too special. And so when Paul says, he's Lord, he's given the name Lord, it has that resonating language with that name of God, that highest name that God has given him. In Isaiah 45, Paul surely is alluding to here when Isaiah says, By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And this now is being referred to in regard to Jesus. You see, Paul is teaching us and helping us see clearly that Jesus is fully associated with Yahweh God, and he's given that same name now. Now. And every tongue will confess. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the fundamental confession of our faith. It's what we as believers and followers of Jesus say now, but it's what everyone will say on the great day. Amen? That's what it means that every knee will bow. every tongue will confess. And he goes on, it says, it's under the earth and on the earth and above the everybody, the dead the living, everybody will confess this, and every knee will bow. There will be a time when every knee, not just one, but every knee will bow. Everyone will be saying, this is the name that is above all names, and I'm confessing that he really is the Lord. The difference is that we who confess him now, we will say it with wonder and amazement and appreciating the reality that we now see fully that we only knew before by faith and the rest will be saying it in fear and trembling because they did not confess him in life but they will confess him on the great day everyone will and there's a great psalm that we sing it's a song of worship that it says one day every tongue will confess you are God one day every knee will bow but the greatest pleasure remains for those who confess him now and that's us. That's the followers of Jesus Christ now who make that great confession. But every day, the great on the great day, everyone will make that confession. Brothers and sisters, as I conclude this message this morning, this great hymn is a wonderful historical hymn. It's a great theological hymn. But if we leave it at that, we've missed something. Because Paul used this great message not as a, a way to do some great theology, but to make a very practical point, and that is that in the church at Philippi, you must be humble amongst one another. And in the church that belongs to Jesus Christ that meets at Norkenzie Street, called the Eugene Church of Christ, you must be humble. You must humble yourself before one another. You must not consider yourself to be better than another person sitting six, 12 feet away from you. You must have the same mind in you that was in Christ. He gave up the glories of heaven for the purpose of the Father's will. Will you not humble yourself in this congregation for the sake of what God wants done in this place? Of course, you must. If you're following Jesus Christ, there is no place for pride. There's no place for someone to say, Well, that job is too low for me to do. Well, I'm a big shot at my company downtown. I'm not going to come in and do such and such and whatever. You are not following Jesus Christ if that's your attitude. You're not following Jesus Christ if you say, you know, I'm not going to go to that guy (laughs) and work out this problem because, uh, you know, I'm not going to admit that I did anything wrong. You're not following Jesus Christ if that's the attitude that you have. You see, humility is at the heart of who God is. It's at the heart of how God has saved the world. And it's got to be at the heart of this congregation. It's got to be in your heart. Or there'll be brokenness all around you. You'll fail to live out the gospel message in its reality. And God's reconciling work What he wants done in this community will not be getting done through you, at least. He may get it done through somebody else, but he won't use you because you won't bow the knee. You won't humble yourself. You know, there's a story of this preacher who is a very famous preacher who's um, a scholar. He's also a wonderful speaker. And he was coming to this new church, and they were so excited to have him. They couldn't believe they got this guy coming into his place. And they said, well, you know, we're, we're making this new study for you because we know you're a great student of the Word and you want to be studying and all that. And we've got it set up right up here by um, the stage so that you can be studying, whatever, and then step right out onto the podium and then preach to the people. And he said, well, that's, that's wonderful. I've got a, a few things I'd like for you to do to make that study useful for me. And I said, sure, no matter what, whatever, just write them all down. So he writes down some things. And they give it to the carpenter, and the carpenter looks at it, and he's like, okay, yeah, he wants the window over there. Okay, he wants the bookshelves to be this tall, and he wants this, and that, and he comes across this one thing. He wants the top of the door to be five feet, and that's it. He wants a five-foot door. And the carpenter's like, what, is he a short guy? What, is he a hobbit? That's a joke, All right, okay. You guys know what hobbits are, huh, right? All right. No, he's not a hobbit. Because he sees him later, and he's, the guy's six foot three. Maybe he's as tall as Calvin. And he asks him, so I understand everything you want done in this study, but I don't understand this thing about the door. And the preacher says, well, okay. I want a short door. Because every time I go into my study to study the word of God, I want to have to bow My head in humility. And then every time I come out on this stage to preach to you, I want to have to bow my head in humility. To be reminded that the one who saved me humbled himself and that I must do the same. And the carpenter said, Well, okay, thought he was a little eccentric. That's going to cost quite a bit because of this and that and whatever and the preacher said, I'll pay whatever it is because the cost of pride and losing my humility is way more expensive than anything that I might pay to have you lower that door. You see, brothers and sisters, we must constantly be reminded that humility wins, that humility is the way in which God saved the world and I have not been Going along here, sorry. It's the way that God saved the world, and it's the way that God will continue to save the world. He's reconciling the world through Christ. And the way that Christ won the world with this humble way is the way we're going to win as well, and it begins with us. It's true in the spiritual realm, but it's also in the practical realm. There will be no peace in your home until humility enters. What basis is there for reconciliation between a husband and a wife, parents and children? between siblings if there's no embrace of humility. I don't think there is any. You can go to as many counselors as you want, but if someone doesn't humble themselves, you'll have no reconciliation. There is no reconciliation between brothers in Christ without a humble heart. There is no soothing of a fractured relationship between two sisters in Christ without someone following Christ in the way of humility. And if you look further in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, I I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to get along. Two women that were having a problem. And I know that never happens in any churches since, but there were two women that had a problem with one another, and evidently it was causing trouble in the church. And I wonder if Paul's overkill statement about humility is all kind of leading to help these two women humble themselves so that they can get this problem worked out and come to the same mind he talks about in chapter 4, verse 2, and 3. In short, reconciliation on the grandest scale was achieved through humility, and reconciliation at the lower levels in our families and in our hearts and our communities comes with humility as well. And trust that God, who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, trust that he will lift you up. That's what God does to the humble. Did you know that? The one who humbles himself, he lifts up. The one who exalts himself, what does God do to that person? Pushes them down, his face is against them. You see this throughout Scripture. And trust that God will lift you up when you humble yourself. That's what happens. It's one of the ways he works. And then finally, for us, let us just glory in the Lordship of Jesus Christ this morning. Marvel at the Lordship of Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, reigning on high at the right hand, speaking your name in intercession to the Father now. That's who we are worshiping today, that's who we're serving today, that's who we're saying no to sin for today, that's who we're confessing today and tomorrow and next month, that's who we're confessing in this pagan world that doesn't know anything about truth and righteousness and the word of God. We're confessing his name, his name is above every name. He's not just a good teacher, he's not just a good moral guide, he's not just a nice sage from the ancient world. And he certainly isn't a tragic victim of Roman injustice that simply inspires people for justice today. No, he's way more than that. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He's reigning at the right hand of the Father above, high above all powers and principalities. Do you know that they use, Ephesians 1 talks about him as so high up there and that the nations are like his footstools. The state of Oregon, his footstool. The federal U.S. government, his footstool. Every nation that's on the face of the earth, it's under His feet. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. That's who we're worshiping this morning. And He demands our obedience and our honor, our great submission to His authority. This is the great call of what it means to be a disciple. And you cannot be a disciple of Him if He's not your Lord as well. And so I ask you, if you've not submitted your life to Christ and called upon Him as your Lord and Savior, why not? He really is the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for your son who humbled himself for our salvation, who humbled himself, and washed our feet, not only washed our feet, but washed us head to toe by the blood that he shed. He became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we cannot stand before you proud of any works that we've done There is dirty rags. But instead, we boast only in Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. And we submit humbly to his work and to obey him and serve him and share him with the community around us. Help us to follow him in the way of humility. And please lift us up in your good time. It's in Christ's holy name that I pray. Amen.